0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuen Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at the University of Helsinki, Finland. Joining me today to talk about Kiribati in the Chinese Pacific is Rodolfo Majo, a senior researcher at an ERC project based at the University of Helsinki, Finland. Previously, Rodolfo has also worked at the University of Oxford and Waseda University in Japan. I'm really delighted to have you today because I think today's topic is really unique I'm not so sure how many people know about Kiribati, know where it is. Before we enter into the real conversation, perhaps I should let you briefly introduce yourself and your work.
0: Thank you for having me, Julie. I'm an anthropologist and I have conducted research while I was based in Oxford and at the University of Waseda in Tokyo, Japan. I guess I shall start by saying that precisely when I was in Japan, I had the opportunity to concretize my desire to decolonize knowledge production, which I think it's an important principle for anthropologists, because anthropologists should be aware that the way in which we produce knowledge is influenced by our cultural background. So when I was dispatched in Japan, I had this very generous scholarship by the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science to conduct a project that I designed myself uh, precisely about the ways in which different weights of colonial baggage influence the way in which anthropologists of different traditions uh, produce knowledge, more specifically about how ethnographers of the Pacific produce knowledge. And so essentially my argument was that if you were conducting research within the Anglophone uh, anthropological tradition, you would have a certain amount of colonial baggage on your shoulders that would influence your knowledge Production and your ethnography of the Pacific, and that would be different from the baggage shouldered by a Japanese ethnographer. That was the first time I had this opportunity to think about how to decolonize uh, the discipline. While I was in Tokyo, I was invited to a conference at Yunnan University in China. It was the International Conference of Asia-Pacific Ethnography and Anthropology. And uh, during the week I spent in Kunming, um, I listened to many scholars talking about the future of China in the Pacific. They completely persuaded me that if I really wanted to understand the Pacific as I progressed in my career as an anthropologist of the Pacific, I had to learn Mandarin and I had to study the geopolitics of Sino-Pacific relationships. And this idea of learning the language was really something that I learned while I was doing the research in Japan, because uh, it was partly uh, my knowledge of Japanese language. I'm not an expert, but I, I can basically have conversations and I can read. Linguistic barriers are a huge, huge problem when it comes to our attempts at decolonizing the discipline. In other words, if we only read people who write in English, uh, we would never be able to essentially include other anthropological traditions. Uh, as you know, in 2020, we have had the pandemic, so everybody was locked into their homes. And that actually was a great opportunity for me to sit down and study these new topics for me Asia Pacific geopolitics and uh, Mandarin. Over the course of about two years, I progressed through the Hanyu Shui Ping Kaoshe, the um, Chinese language proficiency test. Uh, level 1234 and i started this new project this new research direction to study the influence and presence of china in the pacific and um, that resulted in a number of collaborations and uh, a number of publications until I finally found uh, a home for my project here at the University of Helsinki.
1: That's very interesting. Being an originally an anthropologist interested in the Pacific Ocean and then moving on then to look at Sino-Pacific relations and learning the language, it's actually, it was quite an interesting intellectual journey for you. And just out of curiosity, so do you also speak any languages on any of these Pacific islands?
0: When I was in the Solomon Islands, I learned uh, Solomon Islands pidgin. That was uh, necessary to uh, interact on a daily basis. But then I didn't really learn any local language from the provinces. Solomon Islands has many different languages. Uh, local languages, and sometimes even on the same island, you can find several variations of the same linguistic family. So it's a very complex linguistic landscape. And um, language per se is not the focus of my research. I'm more interested in the ways in which language can open up possibilities of mutual engagement in each other's culture. This is really the hallmark of my anthropological passion. I think I am the happiest when I can have a deep conversation of about human life with a person from another culture, possibly in the language of that culture.
1: One more question before we move on to Kiribati about your ERC project. Can you briefly tell us what it is about?
0: So, the ERC project is not about China in the Pacific. Project about China in the Pacific is a project that I bring in, like, as I move around but I was employed to contribute to the ERC project that has been obtained uh, thanks to a successful application of my principal investigator, Matti Herasari, and the project is focused on units and uh, standards of measures. I think uh, the two projects are completely compatible because when Chinese actors, sometimes state actors or business people, come to the Pacific Islands, they engage in uh, interactions and negotiations that have value at their core. So sometimes it's the value of products. So people have to negotiate and That's why it's relatable to the project that Matti is uh, conducting because it's a project about how people create units, how people give value to things. So in that sense, I am in a very good place because I can have, on the one hand, the opportunity of realizing my own research project, but also to scale up to a much higher level and make it relevant also for people and scholars who are not necessarily that interested in uh, the specificities of sino-pacific relationship.
1: Now we return to the issue of Kiribati and the reason i want to talk about Kiribati is because i noticed that you published a paper on Kiribati and China not long ago Kiribati i don't know how many listeners have ever been there at least i know the flag how it looks like (laughs) i know there is a sun and then it's arising from the ocean but can you tell us a bit more about Kiribati where it situates and your impression of the island
0: I would just give a very brief introduction to uh, Kiribati. Um, it's an island country in the Micronesia subregion. So, uh, listeners can imagine it as located at the center of the Pacific Ocean. The name of the country is written uh, Kiribati with T I at the end, but the pronunciation is Kiribati, according to the pronunciation that was established in 1979 when Kiribati became independent. Uh, independent. independent from the United Kingdom and the United States. Geographically speaking, Kiribati is made of about 32 atolls, if I remember correctly. Um, Demographically, we are talking about uh, 120,000 people, mostly on the Tarawa atoll. From the point of view of the economy, Kiribati produces copra and fish and relies on exports uh, for pretty much everything else. So it's heavily dependent on exports. Like most of the Pacific, uh, Kiribati was um, inhabited by Austronesians uh, and Samoans in this case, uh, more more specifically. In the 18th and 19th century, it was visited or spotted and um, studied like to the extent that it was placed on a maritime map. It was Spotted and saw by whalers, explorers, and navigators. And then it became a crown colony in 1916. And it's mostly famous on history books because of the Battle of Tarawa in uh, the Second World War, when... uh, the American troops fought against the Japanese empire. But then it's also very famous for a very sad fact, which is the nuclear and hydrogen bombing, uh, uh, the bomb tests that were carried out in the 1950s and 60s. Fun fact, Kiribati was the first country to see the dawn of the millennium. Last fun fact, it might be the first country to disappear as a consequence of sea level rising. It was particularly interesting for me to uh, develop this new interest for the presence and influence of China uh, in the Pacific when I was at the conference in Kunming that I mentioned, because that was in May 2019. So that's when I started to think about taking this new direction and no later than uh, September. 2019. So just a few months later, Solomon Islands switched diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. And just one week later, Kiribati did exactly the same. So all of a sudden, this surge in diplomatic relationships between Pacific Island countries and China attracted a lot of interest, which is the reason why the picture that is displayed on the first page of my article generated so much debate on Twitter and uh, many different media outlets around the world. So if you want, I I can describe what the picture is uh, about.
1: Yeah, who took the picture, by the way?
0: Well, we don't really know, because Mm -hmm. what we know is that the picture was embedded in a tweet by Michael Field, who is a journalist with interest in the Pacific Islands, Uh, but uh, there was no reference to the actual photographer.
1: And so what is shocking in the picture, or maybe shocking for some people?
0: (laughs) Well, definitely it's remarkable because uh, Uh, What we see is a Chinese diplomat by the name of Tang Songong, and uh, he is walking on the bodies of young men, presumably from the island in which he had just landed with a regional small plane along with his diplomatic staff. They had just arrived and they were welcomed with a ceremony that was uh, unusual, at least from the point of view of many Observers, many international observers, because as I said, there was something that can be described as a red carpet of humans. The diplomat walking on this carpet, on this series of humans laying uh, on their stomach, there were um, Two women helping him to keep his balance because if you ever walked on someone's back, you know that it's not exactly.
1: Yeah, uh, you you might you might actually fall. <laughs>
0: you may actually fall. Exactly, exactly. It's not actually that stable. That's what I wanted to say. That was the first part of the welcoming process. Uh, the second part was being placed on a throne that could be transported. And here I have to make a specification because we cannot see the thrones on the picture, but there was a video that I found later on as I became interested in this issue, a video that was published on Facebook where we can see uh, the same situation, but from the opposite angle. And we can follow the diplomat as his accompanied over the carpet of human bodies until he gets to a point when the, the carpet abruptly stops because there are not enough people to get to the point where the thrones are awaiting for him. I think it's so interesting to see that people were running to contribute to make the carpet longer. The bystanders, um, not necessarily young people, even some elderly men, ran to contribute to making this pathway long enough and allow Songgang to get to the throne and then once he was sitting on the throne, the throne was lifted by some young Kiribati man man, and um, he was transported at the center of the village and uh, the reason why I wanted to emphasize all this is because I think it's important to look at the details because from the perspective of someone who just sees the picture posted by Michael Field we get the impression that we have a Chinese diplomat who is imposing his presence with a dominant attitude, with, a, we, we are almost tempted to say a colonial attitude. Mm. But if we look at the details, we see that, for example, when he was being transported on the thrones, he looked pretty uncomfortable, awkward, and insecure. If we have access to the video, we can listen to the laughter, people laughing They laugh in a way that is, uh, it's very difficult to describe to someone who has never been in the Pacific, but essentially it's a, it's very high pitched and the sound of this laughing is intended to communicate that uh, we are making fun of you but not because we want to exclude you. Quite the opposite. If you allow us to make fun of you, then you will belong to us. And I think it's easier to understand that if we think about um, we enter a new position in an organization. At the beginning, everybody is all formal. And then at some point, someone makes a joke and that joke breaks the ice and all of a sudden everybody is much more relaxed and that's when you receive the emotional the information in the form of an emotion that you are welcome in a new group and I think that's exactly what happened during the welcome ceremony because I think that I made up an argument I developed an argument to try to prove that this is the best way in which we can interpret the welcome ceremony as opposed to a instance, as opposed to a display of Chinese colonialism.
1: I'm just wondering, this kind of welcoming ceremony, has it appeared before in Kiribati or in other Pacific islands?
0: Many commentators have pointed out that this way of welcoming uh, foreign dignitaries has Been organized in other parts of the Pacific. Actually, most times it was not because of a visit by a Chinese official person. Sometimes it was because of a, uh, I think it was an Australian politician. And um, yes, so this idea that welcoming foreign dignitaries by means of enthroning them and transporting them and making them. Act as if they were a dominant figure is um, is pretty common and has nothing to do with the specific with Tang Song and being specifically Chinese.
1: And you know, my first impression is that this Chinese diplomat was actually trying to adapt to the local culture. So maybe he doesn't feel very comfortable with this, but he thought, well, you know, if they want it, that's just their way.
0: If we look at the kind of reactions that were posted on Twitter initially, but then also on Facebook and other social media. And especially if we look at the ways in which these reactions have then been used to develop long articles about what's happening in the Pacific, we clearly see that there has been a highly selective analysis of these reactions. And that's because some of these reactions can be used to feed and develop a essentially pessimistic narrative about the role of China in the Pacific, which has been dubbed by the scholars who study uh, these issues with a a critical discourse analysis approach, has been dubbed uh, the China threat uh, discourse. I think that your reaction is very reasonable and it's the same reaction that I had because I'm familiar with the fact that in China there is a uh, cheng yu, which is a, uh, ru Xian sui su, which essentially can be translated as uh, do as the Romans do. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's my really initial uh, idea that this Chinese diplomat was just trying to accommodate whatever the local wants.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I completely understand that perspective as well, because of course, when someone is particularly sensitive to human rights and perceives a human right violation, there is, it's a violation of the value that this person is holding dear. And of course, the person would immediately become protective, and uh, sometimes the best protection is aggression. So they would become aggressive and uh, create all sorts of very neg- negative and stereotypical comments about what they see. But I think that the ethnographic evidence that I was able to collect, uh, thanks to my colleague um, Petra Autio from the University of Helsinki, who conducted research in uh, uh, Kiribati, it really supports the idea that what's going on there is not domination. It's uh, rather, it's quite the opposite, actually.
1: Something that strikes me, uh, if I may, is that when I read your paper and you use the term Chinese Pacific, in a yeah. way, that is the part where I find a bit controversial. So why do you call it the Chinese Pacific? it belongs to China.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, it sounds a bit a little bit like that. It was intended to create this kind of reaction because uh, I wanted to be provocative both intellectually and uh, politically. Um, From an intellectual point of view I'm essentially asking well why not we use the expression Indo-Pacific now why is indo pacific okay and chinese pacific is not okay there is not nothing specifically indian i think mm. in uh, when we are talking about kiribati another reason is because it's it almost it sounds almost impossible for us to think of um the Pacific as a space that can become Chinese. And um, I'd like to push our thinking. I'd like to push ourselves to think the unthinkable. You know, there is a book, um, edited book that is entitled The China Alternative. And I think it's well, probably the best uh, book on this subject so far. And um, so this bold title clearly indicates that China has become a viable alternative for many Pacific islands. And so the idea that there might be something uh, similar conceptually to a Chinese Pacific is not that far anymore. So I think it's important to provoke our thinking in that direction. From the political point of view, I think my provocation was Uh, because I found documents in which the Pacific Ocean is described as an American lake. So once again, if you can describe it as an American lake, then why not describing it as a Chinese Pacific? Uh, I think this old fashioned attitude as, you know, considering the largest ocean on earth as a lake should be countered with something provocative. Um, But uh, apart from the provocative aspect, there is actually some intellectual connection that I should acknowledge, which is the work of Paul Darcy. He was the first who used the expression Chinese Pacifics uh, in the plural. And I think that the reason is because he was very mindful not to simplify the complexity of uh, Chinese lived experiences and engagements with Pacific Islanders. Knowing that this is the right way, I believe, to uh, address this issue, I think that Obviously, the expression chinese Pacific" has very serious limitations and should be used with these limitations in mind.
1: My last question to you is, well, so China um, is now being a diplomatic ally with Kiribati and Taiwan is out. So what does China really have that Taiwan cannot offer to make like Kiribati change its mind, (laughs) change its diplomatic recognitions?
0: International commentators tend to stress the idea that is based on a utilitarian and materialistic conception of uh, diplomacy. So Kiribati, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, is probably going to be the first country to experience the likelihood of total annihilation because of sea level rising. So it's not like they have A lot of possibility to be choosy when it comes to help that might come from foreign uh, actors so in this case China seems to be willing to provide a lot of help and uh, you know when you are confronted with the possibility of getting something as opposed to nothing um, or as opposed to less well you're rational choice should naturally bring you to choose the partner that can provide you with the most resources. So that's the of, of, that's the most obvious uh, answer. And that's the answer that many international commentators come up with. But if it was only about material resources, then why organizing such a complex welcome ceremony? There is clearly more than that. Pacific Island countries just entered a completely new phase of their diplomatic history in which they are much more bold and much more proud of their cultures. And uh, they will not accept any kind of help at any condition. They want to be treated as worthy partners and uh, they want to uphold their values, such as the value of hospitality. And they want to do it that their way. The fact that China is open. And we can see that in the attitude of the uh, Chinese diplomat in this particular case. I think certainly this is going to make the Sino-Pacific engagement much easier. In in Melanesian ethnography, we talk about maximization of outgoings, which is a economic strategy that is meant to have a lot of gift debtors and or conflict avoidance is another aspect of um, Chinese conversational styles, as opposed to a more uh, conflict-oriented conversation style, which essentially takes uh, competition as the um, cradle of all possible improvements. Um, so when you approach a diplomatic negotiation with this more competitive and individualistic attitude, I think you're going to create more areas of divergence rather than value convergence. So I think that this theoretical approach can help us explain why some diplomatic missions have more success than others.
1: Thank you very much, Rodolfo, for speaking with me. At Nordic Asia Podcast, you have been listening to the Nordic Asia Podcast with me, Julie Yuan Chen, and Rodolfo Macho at the University of Helsinki, Finland.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia Podcast.